Welcome to Podcast Against Antisemitism, the show that takes a deep dive into the world's oldest hatred. I'm Ellie, your host, and you can join us for new episodes every Thursday. Subscribe now at antisemitism.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a show. You can also watch the podcast on our YouTube channel and please consider leaving us a nice review so we can grow our listenership. It makes a big difference. Friends, welcome. It is my distinct honour and privilege to welcome you to the very first CAA Presents. And the very first CAA Presents is with Ben M. Freeman. Now, many of you, uh, many of you will be familiar with our work, but for those who may not be, uh, we are Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, or CAA if you prefer. We are a volunteer-led charity dedicated to exposing and countering anti-Semitism through education and zero-tolerance law enforcement. This is the first event in our CAA Present series, and I couldn't think of a better first guest than Ben M. Freeman. Ben is a Jewish author, activist, and educator who is particularly vocal on social media in the fight against anti-Semitism and the leading voice in the Jewish pride movement. In February 2021, Ben released his first book titled Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People. And last year, he released his second, Reclaiming Our Story, The Pursuit of Jewish Pride. This is the second time we've worked with Ben, the first being his extraordinary appearance on our podcast, Podcast Against Antisemitism, which is a weekly podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. And to our knowledge, is the world's only podcast on antisemitism. It's not as depressing as it sounds. Uh, so please put your hands together for today's guest, Ben M. Freeman. So we're going to do a little interview, and after that, there will be plenty of time for Q&A, followed by further mingling and uh, socialising. Okay, so, um, Ben, first of all, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, my first question is, for those who are not in the know, what was your first book about, and what was your second book about? So, my first book, Jewish Pride Rebuilding a People, is the manifesto of the modern Jewish Pride movement. And it was inspired by my experiences as a gay man, my own journey that I had to kind of undertake towards LGBTQ plus pride. And it is an examination of modern Jewish identity. And it kind of starts the conversation about shame. Although it is a book about pride, it really begins by discussing shame because shame is the absence of pride, perhaps. And I think that shame is something that is part of many of our experiences as Jews. And, you know, as a young gay person, I realised I had done nothing wrong. And that was during a time when I felt enormous internalised homophobia. And I really hated being gay. I did not want to be gay. And I felt that I was broken and different and wrong. And then one day when I was about 17, I had a realisation. And it was that I had done nothing wrong. And that started me on a long path, it wasn't quick, I mean, it took about a decade, but a long path towards not just being comfortable with my sexual orientation, but being proud of it. And I think that's something that's really important. The Jewish community and all communities should not just be aiming for an absence of shame. We should be pursuing pride. We should be proud of ourselves. We should be celebrating the communities that we're a part of, the heritage that we belong to, the cultures that we interact with, hopefully on a daily basis. 
And the book takes the reader through this journey. And the last words of the book, which actually is, I used the last words of the first book, and it's also the last words of the second book. And I was a bit worried that people would think I was cheating, like <laughs> not thinking of a new ending, but I think it's quite powerful. Um, it said, Am Yisrochai, the people of Israel live proudly. And that's what this is about. This movement, this book, is about helping Jewish people overcome shame, overcome internalised anti-Jewishness, and see their Jewishness as, as a source of pride and never shame. And the second book is a deeper dive into internalised anti-Jewishness. And that's kind of more commonly referred to as self-hate, but that's not a term or verbiage that I think is useful. So I would say internalised anti-Jewishness, internalised anti-Semitism, whatever you want. And the reason I wrote the second book is because I was in Hong Kong, I used to live in Hong Kong, and I was stuck there because the COVID restrictions were really intense. And I wasn't traveling, I didn't travel for two and a half years. And I was doing lots of events online. You know, that was one of the amazing things about launching a first book during that experience is that people were very into Zoom. Um, now less so, I think. But still, you know, Zoom is useful. So I did all these events. And I address internalized anti-Jewishness in the fourth chapter of book one. And there's a whole chapter about internalized anti-Semitism, as I called it then. But in every single event that I did, that was the chapter people wanted to talk about. And then people would message me, would DM me on Instagram, on Twitter, and say, you know, this book helped me deal with my internalized anti-Semitism. That's what they said. And I was like, there's a bigger story here. And then I started to reflect my own experiences as a young gay person with internalized homophobia. And the book is, the second book, is really one of the first books in a century on this topic. Because we as Jews are pretty rubbish at talking about shame, at talking about the impact of Jew hatred on us, of talking about internalised anti-Jewishness. So for me, it's trying to introduce the conversation, get people to think about it. And again, taking people through a journey, but in a sense, holding their hand. Because there's shame in shame sometimes. You feel shame and then you're ashamed of feeling the shame. It's this like horrendous shame cycle. And actually, again, the thing that we have to remember is that we've done nothing wrong. We feel shame because we are a minority in a world which does not treat us as equals, which defines our narrative, which imposes shame onto us. So our job is to reject that, reject shame, reject non-Jewish definitions of Jewish identity, and explore what it means to be a Jew through the exploration of our great civilization. Because that is what we are. You know, it's not just, this is very intense with the reverb. <laughs> we are a civilization. And you know, we look at Western civilization, we think about the authors and the text and the history. We have our own version of that. And it's something that every single Jew can interact with. It's not just for one type of Jew. It's for every single Jew. And we should be proud of our Jewishness and see ourselves through our own eyes. We're not looking to the wider world for acceptance. We're not looking to the wider world for them to tell us who and what we are. Yeah. That's, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a humiliation that we will not endure. Mm. Back to you. Uh, first of all, I think that was absolutely tremendous. Uh, yeah, someone's clicking very good. I mean, I think, I think a lot of us are sort of aware uh, to an extent of how we can combat anti-Semitism. There are people we can call, there are, we take photo evidence sometimes, whatever. Um, how, how are some of the ways people can combat internalised anti-Jewishness? Well, I would say that Jewish people, it's very difficult for Jewish people to combat Jew hatred. 
And of course, there is an organization, an organization here that's committed to doing just that. But the thing that we have to understand is that Jew hatred is a non-Jewish problem. Mm. LGBTQ plus phobia is not an LGBTQ plus problem. It's the same for every single community. These are problems from the wider world. So we have to understand that. And then we consider, okay, well, what work do we have to do? Well, our work is to undo the shame, pursue pride. And for me, it all starts with education. And I'm a history teacher, so of course I would say that. And if you would catch me up night, I would have a slideshow and like a little pointer. Because <laughs> I love to teach, I love to educate. That's really, I mean, even the books, that's what they are for me. It's an opportunity to educate. And we have to know who we are. That's where this starts. It's not just about picking some kind of like, you know, uh, superficial perhaps manifestation or expression of Jewishness you know it's not just about and we can do this but it's not just about eating smoked salmon bagels right or hummus or falafel it's not just about doing those things and if we only engage in that surface level then we're kind of missing the great well that our civilization has to offer us so it has to start with education who are we where did we come from what was our story what is our community? What is our experience? And the good as well as the bad. Often Jews only talk about Jew hatred. You know, Jewish education has often for, in the last you know, 50 or so years, centered solely on the Holocaust. We cannot be defined by what is done to us. Mm. We have to define ourselves via our experiences, our identity, our history, our story. That's why the second book is called I almost forgot what the second book is called there. Reclaiming our story. They're quite similar in titles. Um, reclaiming our story. It's our story. We get to tell it. And that's what we have to do. But you have to know the story. Right? And actually, Jessica right here is one of my best friends. And she... <laughs> I had included at the end questions that I wanted the reader to engage in. Kind of like book club questions. And I was on the phone. I was staying at your house, Julie. And I was on the phone to you, Jessica. And Jessica was like... I was like, what should I call them? And she was like, well, call them a chavruta. Because there is this great tradition within the Jewish people of studying, studying in pairs. You know, and Daf Yomi is the study of the Talmud and every day a different page of the Talmud is studied. For, but for the people engaging in a chavruta or in Daf Yomi, are they like kindergartners just picking up these, these texts and engaging in studying? No. You have to go through the different stages of learning and we have to do the same thing. We can only engage in the important conversations. We can only engage in studies or conversations or dialogue about Jewish identity and Jewish civilization if we've done the basics. So the basics are that we're an indigenous people who come from the Levant, the land of Israel, and we had sovereignty there on and off for you know, thousands of years, depending on sometimes kingdoms, sometimes just different territories. And then we were expelled. And why were we expelled? We were colonised. And we have to know our story. We cannot be looking to other people to tell it. But we have to learn it ourselves. We have to do the work. And it sounds like, in a way, kind of boring. Like, okay, everyone has to do the work. But you don't all have to be a history teacher. You don't all have to write a book. In fact, please don't, because then... <laughs> floods the market, as they say. But we all should have fluency. You know, it's, it's that fluency of like, okay, this is where we're from, this is the basics. And every single Jew should know that. Like, I always say, the first mention of the word Israel was on the Merneptah Steli, an Egyptian engraving from 3,300 years ago. And then, that was the Egyptians engraving. We weren't talking about ourselves, they were talking about us. And they were celebrating the defeat of the Jews in battle, or the Israelites, which, you know, a bit par for the course. But they were writing about us, so what can we extrapolate from that? we were established enough to be written about. 
We weren't just some you know, nomadic tribe that was wiped out. No, we were a, a thing to be reckoned with. And they wrote about us. That is something every Jew should know because they're our ancestors. Whether it's you know, from a heritage perspective or just a cultural perspective, that's how our story began. Or that's at least the beginnings of our story. And that's what we have to know. Um, in your book, you, you detail many different manifestations of um, internalized anti-Jewishness. Yeah. And one of the uh, manifestations you talk about is how, uh, because of external anti-Semitism, Jews can end up hating their bodies the way they look. And I think you have crafted one of the finest comparisons between nose jobs and circumcisions I've ever seen in my entire life. I honestly don't remember. You tell me. Okay, well, look. I've not read the book. You were, <laughs> in the book, you, you draw this parallel where in ancient Greece... Yes. Um, ancient Israel ruled by Greece. Ancient Israel I don't remember this. ruled by... This is why I shouldn't be explaining. <laughs> but in order for Jewish people to compete in sports where it was typically done naked... Yeah. Um, they would reverse their circumcision so that people would not know that they were Jewish. Yeah. Because if they did know that they were Jewish, they would be mocked, beaten, or worse. Yeah. Um, you also talk about nose jobs mm. and how a lot of Jewish people have a complex about their, uh, their noses due to stereotypes. Um, I was wondering if you could just talk a bit more about um, how anti-Semitism plays a role in, in how Jews view their bodies. Mm. Well, one of the first things we have to do when considering that question is understand that Jew hatred or anti-Semitism is a racism. And then people often get confused when I say that because they say, but Jews aren't a race. Which is true, I would not argue that Jews are a race. I would actually argue that races don't, don't exist and we shouldn't be using that word or that phrase because that came about in the 19th century as a way to segregate, as a way to humiliate and other different groups, Jews, black people, Native Americans and others. Racism is an action. There's an American, an Asian American professor called Dr. Geraldine Heng who says that groups are racialized. So it's a, it's a doing word, it's a verb. It's not a noun, it's not a thing. And gr different groups can be racialized. So it's not about being a race, it's about the experience of being racialized. And there are many groups that are racialized and we are one of them. And we have been racialized for about a thousand years. Dr. Heng reckons that the first racist state in the West was England in the Middle Ages, and she argues it targeted Jews. So this is... Say again? Surprise, surprise. You, well, yes. <laughs> Precisely. You know what? Yeah, that's here, right? That's in England. That's in Britain. It's not in Germany, where pseudoscientific racism emerged in the 19th century. So once we understand that Jew hatred is a racism, because number one, it targets aspects of our bodies. It targets our hair, it targets our noses, it targets our lips in some cases, and yes, our genitalia, right? The, the, the Jewish penis is, some people are obsessed with it, absolutely obsessed. And that, of course, imposes shame, shame onto us because we're a minority. And I know that sometimes in North London, perhaps, or in places like New York, excluding Israel, right, okay? Because there's our actual majority there. But in the diaspora, we're a numerical minority. And there is always a power dynamic between the majority and the minority. So we have our stories told to us. And one of the stories that are told over and over again is about how we look. I used to want to get a nose job. 
I used to dye my hair blonde. Like, that's a bit weird. Like, if, you, if I like, start thinking about it, it's not like a very healthy thing to have done. And people used to say that nose jobs in the Jewish world were a rite of passage. That's horrifying. If I was work, when I was working in Hong Kong and if one of my Asian students had come up to me and said, I want to get double eyelid surgery, I would have been devastated and outraged for them. But we don't see that same experience in our story. So it does make us ashamed. Because and let's think on even just taking out the Jew hatred. Just put that to the side for a second. There are Eurocentric beauty standards which exist in this world, right? Because of the dominance of Europe. And that is often like the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, you know, etc. The Aryan, basically. And we also have to recognise another truth from our identity and our experience. That we come from a certain place. And for about 2,000 years after we were colonised and expelled, we basically only married each other. It's like non-gross incest. And that's really it. Like, it's, you know, we were, Jews were marrying Jews. Jessica and I are not related, and we were in New York, I was thinking about this earlier, in New York, putting another friend, Kathy, into an Uber. And there was about four bouncers outside. Do you remember? And they said to us, are you two related? And we said, no, we're just Jews. <laughs> and that is something we deny, though. We deny that there are features common to Jewish people. And that's not to say that every Jew has them. And it's not to say that that is the only way to define Jewishness. It's not even to say that that's the way we define Jewishness at all. It's just an aspect of the Jewish identity or experience. But because of things like the Shoah, the Holocaust, where they did talk so much about how we looked, where they did talk so much about, you know, the ancestral nature of the Jewish uh, identity or the Jewish people, we reject it. And we say, no, 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 that, that's not true. To recognise that there are, com there are features common to Jews does not in any way justify the racialising that Jews experience. To recognise that for many Jewish people, not all, but for many, there is an ancestral aspect to Jewishness does not justify what the Nazis said. But this is trauma. The Jewish people as a collective, you know, not necessarily individually, who knows, right? That's, each of you have, will have to do that kind of introspection yourself. But as a collective, we have endured so much trauma. But we don't talk about it. So we have to understand that the way that we are treated, the way that we are perceived, the stories that are told about us, they impact us. You know, I was rubbish at science, but I do remember osmosis. And that's what it is. It passes through our, whatever it is. I don't remember that. Either, so. It does. It, it passes through our membrane and it becomes part, part of our psychological makeup. And we have to reject it because we cannot define beauty via the physicality of one specific people. Beauty comes in many different shapes and forms. And I think it's really interesting and important to understand this about the Jewish experience. Jessica and I, she's getting a lot of mentions, we also saw Funny Girl in November with Leah Michelle. It's about the story of Fanny Bryce. It was and amazing. It, yeah, it was a quick <laughs> story, actually. And in the reviews, someone said, it's so outrageous that anyone would say that Leah Michelle wasn't beautiful. And Leah Michelle's, uh, from an ancestral perspective, half Jewish. I'm not entirely sure what her relationship with Jewishness is. Her father's Jewish, her mother's Italian Catholic. Her father's a Sephardic Jew. And it's, for Jews, it's like, well, of course there's a time, and even probably not that long ago, that people would have said someone who looked like Leah Michelle was not beautiful. Because she does not fit Eurocentric beauty standards. And that causes great shame to us. 
And it's a tragedy, it's a Jewish tragedy that we've had people changing how we look. And listen, whatever, people can do what they like with their noses. If you get a nose job, it's up to you. I don't, like, whatever, I don't care. But think about it. And the reasons we, that we may or may not engage in cosmetic surgery should not be in a, in a bid to look less Jewish. And, and we have to understand that the modern nose job was basically invented by a Jew, Jack Josephs in Germany, helping people look less Jewish. And he gave out free nose jobs in the beginning of the 1930s to help Jews pass. This is a part of our experience that we just don't talk about. And it's crazy. And just like communities in India, communities in Asia, which I know obviously India is in Asia, I'm talking about East Asia where I was living. So let's start again. Communities in India, communities in Hong Kong, people there might engage in skin lightening and that is a terrible thing, I think, as an observer. It's equally as terrible that Jews would get nose jobs to look less Jewish or that black people would lighten their skin as well. It's, we have to reject these ideas, but the only way you reject them is to talk about them. Because people are told, oh, you don't look Jewish. And we're meant to take that as a compliment. Mm. It's not a bloody compliment. Mm. It's not an insult either. It just is, right? But the fact that we perceive it as a compliment is deeply, deeply worrying and is a tragedy for our community. Hey, if you want to stay up to date with the fight against anti-Semitism, why not subscribe to Campaign Against Anti-Semitism? Visit antisemitism.org slash act or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube. You, you, you've um, you very eloquently spoken about the ways uh, Jews will uh, alter their, their physical bodies in order to be accepted. You also write in your book about how Jews will modify their belief systems or deny their belief systems in order to be accepted by perhaps friends or whoever um, so they are not uh, outcasted basically. Um, I was, thought it was really interesting to talk a bit about that. Sure. I'll start by telling a very brief story about me being at university and being gay. And I was at a house party and I was in a room and someone said, um, that's so gay. And then every head turned to look at me. And I was like, oh, that's fine. I'm not that type of gay. As in, I was not a proud gay person. I was a gay person who would diminish, who would warp, who would change who, myself to be, to be accepted. And that also happens in our community. I used to say I'm Jewish, but. I'm Zionist, but. Because I wanted to show that I'm a Jew just like you guys, just like my, my non-Jewish friends I was hanging out with. Or, or I'm a Zionist, but I'm not a crazy Zionist, you know. Like, that's really what I'm saying. And when I say I'm, not, I'm Jewish, but, what I'm really saying is I'm Jewish, but I'm not Orthodox. And the Orthodox community right now in New York City are the, the victims of the vast majority, like 92, 93% of the hate crimes that target Jews. Yeah. To be a visible Jew means you're more vulnerable. And Jews, and I'm now a visible Jew because I wear a kippah, but before I, when I, before I did that, I was trying to distance myself from them because I was ashamed because they're the obstinate Jews who won't assimilate, and I wanted to show that I was just like everyone else. And you're right, we, we've changed the entire definition of what it means to be a Jew, to be accepted. One of my bugbears is the idea that we're just a religion. Mm. We're not just a religion, and we have never been just a religion. And of course, religion is a huge part of Jewish identity, and in many ways you can't really separate the religion from the culture, right? You know, my father passed away six years ago in February, the end of this month is his yard site. 
and I say Kaddish every year. And Kaddish is, is actually, if you read the translation, not about the dead. It's about God. It's about like, yay, God's the best, exalt God's name. And I'm saying Kaddish, even though I'm not thinking about God. I'm thinking about my father and thinking about this is how Jews honour their dead and have honoured their dead for countless generations. So it's difficult to separate, but you cannot erase the the greater Jewish identity, which is an am. Am in Hebrew is people. And it's quite difficult, you know, we as a people, we predate modern definitions of identity. Like race, religion, all of these things, like our story began like 4,000 years ago. 3,000 years, 3,300 years ago, we were on the Merenuptastele, remember? That was before people started talking about these things. And we try to fit into these boxes, or we're put into boxes often, and that impacts how we feel about ourselves. In 1791, just following the French Revolution and the National Assembly, a French count stood up talking about the Jews, and he said, we cannot have a nation within a nation. If, we want to, if they want to be a nation, we'll expel them. This was at the very kind of crucial point of the Enlightenment, when emancipation was being offered to the Jews. The Jews who before had lived in ghettos and shtetls were now able to join society, go to university, become doctors, be part of the general population, be part of civic society. Of course they said yes. So we changed our identity. In 1896, I believe, the reform movement in the United States issued the Pittsburgh Platform, which denied Jewish nationhood. They said, we're no longer a nation. We do not wish to return to Israel. We're only a religion. And again, we're doing that, or we did that to be accepted. And it's, I mean, number one, it doesn't work, right? All of those things happened, and then the show happened. And then look what we're living through now. There is a crisis going on right now. And I, don't, I want everyone to leave here feeling proud and feeling excited to be Jewish. But there is a crisis. And there is a war against Jews taking place. And it's taking place on campuses. It's taking place online. It's taking place in a lot of different locations. And we should be aware of it. And we fight it with pride. But we have to recognise that fact. That the effort that we made to assimilate, that we made to integrate, was a complete failure. But it wasn't a failure because we didn't try hard enough. It was a failure because the goalposts kept being moved. Okay, just do a wee bit more. Just do a wee bit more. Psych. There was, this was never about accepting us. Emancipation, it was a good thing. We were freed from the ghettos. That is positive. But we cannot look at it as a solely altruistic exercise. Because they bloody made us sign these terms and these contracts. And there was a million terms and conditions. Like the tiny wee small print that no one reads. That's what happened to us. So it was coercion. And that was really the major turning point where this story explodes, where the internalised Jewish story stops being about specific Jewish communities at different times and becomes a kind of Western, specifically Western epidemic. And it's something we have to recognise. And I think that it can be tricky because I'm British and Scottish, but I'm also a Jew. <coughs> and we have to figure out how to have hyphenated identities. British Jew, Scottish Jew. And I believe that integration for Jews, I use the word inherently, I don't know if I, don't know if I really believe it's inherently, I think it operates this way. Integration is incredibly difficult because we're trying to integrate into societies that were built in opposition to us at a foundational level. And an individual Jewish person can live in 
non-Jewish society and have a great time. But there's always two levels to this. One is the individual, the personal, and then one is the collective. How do the Jews integrate, as opposed to how do I as a Jew integrate? And there, of course, is connection and correlation, but they are, um, it's complicated. There's separateness there. And I think that we have to think about how these things impact us, what it means to be a minority. Number one, recognising that we are a minority, actually. Number two, recognising that many of us hold trauma, that that trauma manifests in a myriad of different ways. And that the last thing that we have to understand is that Jewishness does not belong to us. Jewish pride will have been a successful <coughs> movement if, long after I've gone, people are still talking about pride. This is multi-generational. We are caretakers of this beautiful thing that we've been handed. And it's our job to mend it, to repair it, to rebuild it, to reclaim it before we pass it on to the next generation. And we do them a disservice if we don't do the necessary work. In, in both of your books, it's, it's kind of the same structure. The first half is, is history and, and theory. And the second half is a collection of interviews. Yeah. Um, I want to know why, why did you decide to lay your books out this way and how did you decide who to interview? I planned the structure of the books like I planned a class. And you think, okay, what do you do in the first lesson? That's like the prologue. Then what's like the first couple of weeks? That's the introduction. And then you get into the meat, right? It's about laying that groundwork so people, the students are able to understand the, the content that's coming. And, the, you know, this work is a bit weird. And many, it's very weird, to be honest. But it's weird because on one hand, it's academic, and intellectual, and theoretical. But on the other hand, we're talking about real Jews. We, we are not, as the non-Jewish world, claim us just an idea. We're real people with real experiences of, the, experiences of the world. So when talking about Jewish identity, you have to speak to real Jewish people. And in the first book specifically, I was very regimented with, with how I chose people. I wanted to choose uh, an Ashkenazi Jew, a Bet Israel Jew, an Ethiopian Jew, a Sephardic Jew, and an Israeli Jew. And then there was other Jewish stories that I encountered that I thought were interesting. There was a non-binary Australian Jew, there was a black American Orthodox Jew, like just I thought were interesting stories that would add a richness. With the second book, it was in a sense a little more complicated because people had to be willing to talk about internalised anti-Jewishness and their internalised anti-Jewishness. Like I've made myself incredibly vulnerable and bared myself to the world through these books, but not everyone wants to do that. Like I chose to do that, they're my books. So I put out like a little shout out on Instagram and I said, Does anyone, if anyone has experienced internalized anti-Jewishness, would you mind speaking to me? That was really it, it wasn't more complicated than that. And then I got, you know, a number of different messages and then I kind of did a pre-interview. And the last interview in the book is a woman called Livia. And her story is incredible. It's just so crazy and fascinating. And she was added later because there was another interview who dropped out, which was a little annoying. <laughs> but actually it worked out well, because Livia's story is so brilliant. And I had that, I did the, the pre-interview with her, and I, in my tiny little office in Hong Kong, and I came out, it was a Friday night, and I came out to the living room, my partner was playing PlayStation. And I like, he used to wear big headphones. And I said like, take your things. And I was like, that was the craziest story I've ever heard. And I was like, I think it might be too crazy for the book. <laughs> like it's just it's like it, it hits every single possible manifestation of internalized anti-Jewishness in one story like it's mad and he was like well that's why you have to include it 
So for me, I just wanted to tell real people's stories and I wanted to illuminate the theory because I try to write these books to be as accessible as possible. And I think I succeed in that. Although you are really the people who should be judging that. But there's still, it's still complicated stuff. This is not, it's simple. We're talking about thousands of years of identity, thousands of years of trauma, thousands of years of complexity. And even I have to say, when I was writing the first half, especially the second book, there were times I would write something and I would kind of would know it was true because I've done the research, but part of me was like, am I overstating this? Is this really like, as is it as bad as this? And then I did the interviews and I was like, whoa, so much worse. And they were real people's stories. It was not figures from history. It was not theory. It was real Jewish people who were not well known. Right, this was not also, a, the first book, the people were more well-known. There's Rachel Riley, is, she's an interview, she's obviously like a famous person. But in the, the second book, they were just real people. And I was so honoured that they trusted me. Because it's an incredibly courageous thing to, to bear your soul. And to talk about that incredibly complicated, intimate uh, self-perception. And there is always the, also the opportunity that people judge. And I'm so grateful to them, and I, I think it makes the books, or these interviews make the books more compelling, more interesting, and more real. And that's what I wanted more than anything, is for this to speak to people. This was not just a book that people would study in a library or in a class and then put away and it would get dusty. Like, I want people, again, Jessica always says to me that she's, like, bad with her books, like, she writes in them and she, they mess up. I want that. I want people to engage with this. And the interviews really help that because they cancel out any shame. If you're feeling shame reading this book, just skip to Livia. She's been through it all and look how she's come through it. I, um, I must confess, at the end of uh, Ben's first book, I went through all of the interviews uh, and one by one, I messaged all of the guests and most of them have now been on the podcast. Ah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like Amy was on recently. Amy was on, Isaac DiCastro was on. Um, what has the reactions to your books been? This is... A I can, I, I like this question, but it's also an odd question, because I like, have to talk about how much everyone likes my books, um, <laughs> which is very nice. Yeah, I mean, the reaction's been amazing. It's, you know, when I, I wrote the first book, I, I wrote the second book, I think, actually, I was still living in Hong Kong. And I was doing all this work and doing all these engagements and tweeting and Instagramming, but I was so physically separate. And I would say to my partner, because this work is hard, and it, it, it weighs on you. And it definitely has an impact on mental health. And I said to my partner sometimes, like, I'm like, I don't know if this is working. I don't know if this is making any impact. And what I've learned by going on the tours, I was in America in October, I'm going again in a couple of weeks and twice more this year. That's when I get to see the impact. And people come up to me and say, like, tell me it's changed their lives, which is so bizarre. And it feels very awkward saying that in front of all of you because it's a bit embarrassing, but it's true. Because it's, it's the, the first book of its kind, I think, to offer history and offer theory and, and offer context, but still speak to people's emotions. And without judgment, you can never educate with judgment. And I never stood in front of my students in Hong Kong being like, you don't know this? That's not how you educate. You lead people through and say, like, come, come on this journey with me. And that it's, it's the reason I keep on doing this work. You know, if it, if it hadn't made an impact, if it, ha if it hadn't spoken to people, who knows if there would be a third? There will be a third. But who knows if there would actually be a third? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I think that there definitely 
certain quarters, particularly in the United States, where it's very challenging because it challenges a lot of the preconceived ideas that I think particularly American Jews had about their state status in American society, the role of the Jews. You know, even during the, the Kanye debacle, I heard American Jews say, we shouldn't say anything. We should just keep our heads down, which is ludicrous. Not only is that, it, I mean, it just doesn't work, number one, but also like, what, so we just don't get the inspiration? Our kids don't see us fighting for them? No, that's pathetic. So I think and definitely in certain quarters in the United States it's been challenging. But yeah, the, the reaction has been incredible. It's, I, it's, it's, I said to my manager that I know cognitively what the books have done, but I don't feel it. And I said that's a good thing. Because, you know, you want to just write and not think about the, like, what am I doing? How am I changing the world? You just want to write a really good book and hope that it speaks to people. And I'm really proud of it. I, mean, oh, I hate saying that because Jewish pride. Um, <laughs> I'm really uh, appreciative of, of this work. And, you know, education, you know this, Julie, she was also a teacher. Education's a two-way street. You know, I could have prepared the best class ever. And if it was an after-lunch slot and the students were, like, in their carb coma, then, you know, if they're not listening, they're not listening. It is a two-way street. And the fact that people are receptive, the fact that people come to events, the fact that people buy the books and talk about the books and let it into their minds and their hearts is... It's an incredible privilege to get to, uh, you know, make a living from writing about one of your great passions is something that I will never take for granted. What have you got uh, coming up and where can people find you? So coming up, I have three tours to the United States this year, or North America, I should say, because I also go to Canada. I'm going in a couple of weeks. I'm going in May for Jewish American Heritage Month and then also October. And it's only I'm going in October because the Jewish holidays are so, are so early this year, which is a good thing, because that time of year is very difficult to organise anything. And I'm going to start writing the third book, I think in, I say March or April, it's very much the end of March. It's not going to be the beginning, and it's going to be about Jewish indigeneity. So kind of, ex you know, offering up the notion that the Jews are an indigenous people in the same way that we understand other communities are indigenous. And that does not just mean that we're from the land of Israel. It's the fact that we're rooted there. So when we grew up in Scotland, we ate pomegranate. Pomegranate is not indigenous to Scotland. Raspberries. <laughs> Actually, say Scottish raspberries are like the best raspberries in the world. They're really good. But it's, it's, it's pomegranate. We eat pomegranate because that's one of the Shivat Hamenim, one of the seven species of fruit that comes from Israel. We celebrated New Year in September, October because we were honouring and recognising and celebrating the Jewish calendar, which is specific. So we are an indigenous people, so that's what that book will be about. I've got a fourth book planned, which will be a children's book, Jewish Pride for Kids. And it will be a fifth book about the Holocaust. Because I, I was a Holocaust educator. That's really how I started in this space, was by teaching classes on the Holocaust, taking trips to, you know, taking people on trips to Auschwitz. Um, and I think it's a field which people talk a lot about, and basically no one knows anything about it. And it's, there's also worrying trends we're seeing about how it's spoken about and how it's being de-Jewified. So that's something I would like to address. And I have no idea what book sex will be. And sure finally, uh, in London, no, I'm kidding. Um, in, on Twitter and Instagram, at Ben M. Freeman, and my website is 
www.benmfreeman.com. It's all Ben M. Freeman. The M is very important. <laughs> the number of emails I get, they'll be like, oh, sorry, I emailed you earlier and I forgot the M. It's like, well, more for you. <laughs> Friends, please give Ben M. Freeman a massive round of applause. To, uh, you know, to read exactly what Ben is saying, I believe his books are available for purchase on Amazon. Um, now, you may have seen on your seats, we left you some little cards, uh, but if not, no worries to stay up to date with us. Um, if you'd like to volunteer or donate or listen to our podcast, um, go to antisemitism.org and you can follow us on sh- social media where our handle is at antisemitism on all platforms. Thank you so much for coming. We have the place booked till 9.30. So until then, go drink, go eat sushi. Minutes 17 minutes. minutes. And I will see you at the next CAA Present. Thank you very much. Go home safe. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Podcast Against Antisemitism. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a nice rating or email any feedback to podcast at antisemitism.org. Until next Thursday, stay safe.